West West Show. first off mm-hmm. that was like a condenser mic mm. so it picks up everything around but these mics are dynamic mics so it's only picking up around here oh. so you gotta be real real close stuff. is but, it like that ASMR mics like you can hear the baby crying it's like not mm. gonna be as loud okay in the audio yeah because it's oh. like right at the back sort of thing so I learned that eh? and I was like oh yeah I'll get those mics but then I was like oh Six hundred dollars each. Yeah, I was thinking there's so many mics and they're like really expensive as well, and yeah. all this gear as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. because you you started with doing podcasts and stuff there. Yeah, I yeah. Yeah, I just have um that lavalier mic. That's right. That one just clips on. Clips on yeah, because yeah. I just wanted to go to people and just be like, quickly let's just chat, and plus like it was a cheaper way to start podcasting as yeah. well because i was like students so i'm like i can't afford all this gear but i mean it yeah it works yeah the job yeah because did you go straight up to youtube or did you have audio first i can't remember because i remember yeah. i remember listening to your earlier stuff yeah. um, i think i started it must have been audio because i remember everyone was doing podcasts and i'd already done some youtube stuff and instagram stuff posting online and then i thought oh podcast looks really interesting so yeah i think i just started with audio and then went and did the video just i just had my phone mm. and just recorded our interviews yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> but you've done one for a while eh? Have you? i haven't done one in ages mm. yeah yeah so you've been busy doing your phd so i remember la- last time you came i think it was couple of years or a year that you just came back from Samoa mm-hmm. and you're you're getting ready to do your PhD or you're, or you're at least thinking about it or yeah. you're just in that like transition kind of yeah. stuff, eh? transition period where you where you said you got yeah you wanted to do it but you weren't starting but I remember seeing on social media you, you said I'm gonna do it now and you went into it so what happened there what was the whole yeah um so buzzy to think about it um so when I came back from Samoa I wanted to do a PhD and so I applied to do the PhD, but the university said that my grades were not good enough. And so basically I spent two years trying to jump through all these academic hurdles because they said I needed to provide like references to say that I was a good student to do a PhD. I needed like references from my work in Samoa and like all this other stuff. And in the end, they said, my case and my references are not good enough that I can't actually do a PhD. And so that was horrible. And I think that was the time when COVID started. So like having COVID didn't really help, but it just pushed everything back in terms of administration in the university. Mm. And so for the next year, I was kind of like in limbo about what to do. 
So we kind of got there in the end where I had to do a few courses and papers and I got through. So I am now at the end of my first year, my PhD, but it actually took me two years of trying to actually get into the program, PhD program at the university. So it was really frustrating because they just didn't communicate with me at all. Like there was just no indication of how my process was going in terms of my case. It was just like, it was horrible, but it's done now. So I finally do my PhD. (laughs) Did they tell you why why you were lacking on information that you needed and that? Like obviously you went to Samoa and you worked there. And you were studying the um, the tarot leaves and that, uh, and all that kind of stuff. It seems like to me like uh, that there was enough. Like there's like real work experience. That's what I thought, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what my supervisors thought as well. So they were confident going into presenting my case. But what the university said is that it came down to my grades. Mm. They said because I got a B minus, that was not good enough. And that's all it was, which is really surprising to me because I know there are a lot of bright students who are not A-plus students, you know. Mm. And I've been told by many people that they don't always choose A-plus students because um, usually students who get around like the Bs are a bit more, um, like they don't give up. If, if something, is, if an experiment is going wrong, then they're like really persistent compared to the A students who usually do everything amazing and find everything really easy so yeah it kind of sucked that it came down to my grades oh okay yeah so that would have put put anyone off but 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 for you you stuck to it eh? and how did you get over that like you got that bad news you know i think a lot of people were just given up and did something else but what was it with you that 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 made you think to yourself oh okay i'll better sort it out and carry on yeah I think mainly because of the location of the university. So I'm talking about the University of Auckland and all my families here, my mum and my nana. And my nana's 92, so I wanted to be close to her. And I think that was the main reason that I persisted because I wanted to stay in Auckland. Um, But I did talk to other universities like Waikato, Massey University, also down in Wellington. Because like I said, hey, I want to stay in Auckland. Could I still enroll with you even though like you're in Wellington or Waikato? And they said, yeah, that could work out. So that was great to to know that. But I, yeah, I mainly persisted because I wanted to stay in Auckland. But I mean, it was really hard because I didn't have any income as well because I didn't want to start a job, like a full-time job, and then the university say, oh, you can do your PhD. Because I just didn't feel like that would be appropriate if I wanted to go and work full time, or even part time as well. So, um, I think maybe it was also like <laughs> I don't know what you would call it. Kind of feels like being naive, or in a way, or just kind of like <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it. Like you, you can't say no to me. I gotta yeah, do something about it. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know why that is. Mm. Mm. So it was the Auckland University that finally um, let you start the PhD. And how did that happen? Like, what was the, what happened there? <laughs> um, so the university said to me that I could do my PhD if I have the support of my supervisors and that I do an additional 
milestone according to them and so that milestone was that I just had to um, either present a paper at a conference or write like a chapter of my thesis Um, and so my supervisors were happy with that and my supervisors were happy to support me and so we were able to go ahead and do the PhD so it was really down to my supervisors so really thankful for them. But you already had them in your in your pocket. Yeah. Already. Yeah, and they. <laughs> so it was alright. Yeah. yeah. So what was the other thing you had to do? The, um, you had to write a chapter, and then you had to. What was the other thing? Uh, so, um, well, I chose to uh, present um, my research at a conference. All right. Yeah. Right. Oh, the the one you're doing your PhD on. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because you had it all in your mind, what you wanted to study and what you wanted to to write about. But um, but you also did some speaking too at schools and that. So. Yeah. That kind of stuff. So wasn't that wasn't that stuff counted? That's a really good point. Um, it wasn't counted, and I think that's because when the university looks at a student, they're really looking at the academic work, so the things that they have done research on, or things that have been published in science. When we publish work, it's more legit in a way, because we've done all these trials, we've analysed it, and we've critiqued it. So when I talk about science communication and talking at schools to students about science, the university doesn't give much weight to that because it's not research. Yeah. Mm. Which okay. is, yeah, that's a good point. But yeah. Because it was more your own experience. Yeah. What you were talking to the, talking to the kids about. That's right. Like I oh, hadn't okay. done anything in the lab, yeah. and I hadn't, and then analyzed it or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they accepted you. When did they accept you? Well, I started twenty twenty two, so it must have been like end of twenty nineteen, because oh. I started my PhD first of February twenty twenty two. Yeah. And when is it due to finish? Oh, I've got another two years. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 2025. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and because I'm not familiar with how the PhDs work, mm. so it's more of a, they assign you a topic to study if you're, if say if you want, it's a PhD for anything, like a, yeah, a science for, for, or history or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, like for a PhD, generally it's three years worth of research mm. and Usually when you do a PhD, you've already done your bachelor's degree, so that's three years of study, and then you do a postgraduate, which is another year, and then a master's, which is a research in research of a body of work for a year, so that's five years of study that you've done, and then you're able to do your PhD. So generally by that time, they kind of trust you, like, oh, you can create your own research. Yeah. So generally it's going to be new stuff people have never done before, new topics people haven't explored. So, um, yeah, and you can do it in, like, your his- in history. I think they do it for dance as well. It's quite, dance. like, a mm. wide range in music as well. You, I know someone who's doing their PhD in musicology. I think of Samoan music. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, you can pretty much do a PhD on anything. Mm-hmm. Because you, you're otherwise known as the Samoan scientist. And, you know, you just mentioned the PhD, that person doing PhD in Samoan mm-hmm. music. Like how how big is is that now in the universities? Like wanting to do PhDs within with people's cultures, or, you mm. know what I mean, and that kind of stuff. So it must be it seems to be re- really big now. Like they're trying yeah. to en- encourage more of that. 
Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just thinking at the university that I go to, they have Pacific Studies and they have quite a few Pacifica PhD students. Like I know one person who's done their research on mental health, I think with in terms of like sports players. Um, there's been some quite intense topics um, like, um, oh, I can't remember what it is, in, but like in reference to um, kind of, sexual violence within like the pacific islands and how we interpret that things like that um and then yeah there's quite a range of pacifica students doing like pacific related topics mm. in terms of phds mm. for you doing topic of um of food eh? that's, mm. that's the one how, how far you have you got into it now um so i'm looking at the samoan traditional diet and in my first year, I have to read what has already been published about Samoan food. Um, so I've read a lot of works by missionaries. So the missionaries who came to Samoa in the 1830s. Um, and they were <laughs> really interesting. Um, that A lot of them were inaccurate, some very racist. Um, but, I, but they did record food, which is great for me as a researcher. And I found that the Samoan diet was made up of taro, uh, breadfruit, banana, yam, coconut, and fish. So like a really starchy diet. Mm. Um, was that before the missionaries? Or? Um, it was when the first missionaries came, so like 1830s to early 1900s oh, okay and that's what just what they recorded that's oh, what okay. they recorded yeah. yeah and so it's kind of like it's kind of stinking away because I, I wish there were Samoan authors who had also recorded what they were eating because I don't really know if that was actually what they were eating what the missionaries wrote because they may not have had an understanding of some of the food that they ate and how they prepared it and things like that. But that's the information that I've got to go on. Yeah, it's interesting eh, when you go back to it. Cause, um, because then you've got the recorded stuff, right? What the mission you said. Then you've got the traditional, the word of mouth, the mm. kind of like, we, we've been making food this way for ages. Like, How do you do, differentiate what's been, what's for recorded was was new or what, or the traditional stuff, eh? Yeah, um... Like, how are you going through that process? Because that must be... Because, like you said, there's no authors. You know, you're just going to go by what you research, what, what's what's done on paper. But you probably have to go... You have to go to Samoa and talk to the I authors know. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I was planning to do that as part of my research, but um, that was before COVID. Mm. And so now we're just staying in New Zealand. But I'm planning to talk to people who have some knowledge about Samoan foods, so elders, matais, um, just wanting to hear the experience of Samoan traditional foods. Um, so yeah, that's part of my research as well, like trying to find those people and um, yeah, just having like a discussion with them about foods, mm. Samoan foods. And all the influences that came off of there, like there's the Chinese influence and all that. Mm. With the sapasui and that. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. sapasui. <laughs> yeah. Because would you say that's traditional? Uh, I wouldn't say that, eh? Yeah. If the, if the Asians brought that in. Mm. Even the even the 
Uh, German stuff, eh? Yeah. German. Well, well, I think it was German bun, but was there a lot of bakery stuff that is influenced by the Germans? Yeah. Like yeah. bread and that. Yeah. Like they can make their own bread and stuff like that. Yeah. But there's, yeah, there's German buns with the, um, what is it? The, it's, it's crimson, eh? Uh, <laughs> um, it's yuck, I man. I, I, yeah, I don't like the episode. <laughs> I, like I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's like a sour, not even sour. I can't even describe what it tastes yeah. like. It's not, it's like, like, it's like a, a, it's sweet, eh? Yeah, it's sweet. But it's like not very nice. No. <laughs> <laughs> I just like my kikapo, uh, my pork buns. <laughs> That's my favorite. See, even that could have been from the, the Chinese. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Sapsui. Uh, yeah, definitely from the Chinese. So you've been studying all that kind of stuff too, right? I'm trying to stay away from that because I feel like like sapsui kikapo, um, like the masi and the um, kikisenga, that isn't traditional, I would say. Mm. So I kind of said when I'm looking at Samoan traditional foods, I'm wanting to look at foods from the like 19th century, so 1800s to early 1900s. Mm. So it's more like the foods just by themselves, like the galo. The breadfruit, banana, yam, coconut, and fish. Yeah, seafood would be a good one because oh, yeah. man, we we probably eat a lot of stuff in the sea that no one else eats. Eh? Yeah, like yeah. seal. That's so true. Have you had that? Have you had, no, have you had seal? I'm too scared. <laughs> man, I I tried it. Eh? Yeah. And man, that was gross. Uh, <laughs> nah, it's a quiet taste. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Even even a, a piece of um of color couldn't save the taste. Because I, I just grabbed them. <laughs> now it's still yucky. But what about the balolo? I've had that. Yeah? What's that yeah, like? That's nice. Okay. I had it on um, on toast. Oh, yeah. Like They they dry it out, eh? I don't even know how they... I don't know do how it. they prepare it, actually. I think they dry it out. They dry it out and it's and it looks like a spread. You know? Oh. You, you, just put it on, you just spread it on toast. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good. It's a good taste. Yeah, but it, it comes out like worms, eh? Like small worms. Yeah. It's have you seen like it? Have you seen it up, up close? Not up close. Mm. Yeah. Only in pictures. It looks gross, eh? But, yeah. Um, but it's so expensive. It is expensive. And I think everyone says it's like going to be the next caviar or something like that. Eh? Yeah, like, I've heard that as well. Yeah. But I'm not sure if any restaurants overseas like have have taken that. Yeah. Because you get your high end foods, eh? Like. Like caviar or um, what's it called? Um, truffles. Truffles. So I think Balula is like in that category, mm-hmm. eh? that that level of a fancy food. Eh? That's yeah. a good point. I wonder if you can get Balolo. You must get it in the other islands, like Hawaii or somewhere. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but only thing I heard is that it only comes out once a year, mm-hmm. like October or something. And it's in Samoa only, or something. Oh. Or maybe they haven't, they don't know where else. Because I was thinking, else. how could they, if they were going to have it in a fancy restaurant, they would need to somehow like prepare it so they could send it, you know, like buy security and stuff. Mm. And right, I wonder yeah. if there's like a, there must be some company in Samoa that does that, like packages, packages it, prepares the balolo and then sends it. For heaps to, to like other fancy restaurants. Yeah, that's a good point. I've seen some social media they're selling it for a thousand dollars for a tub. Really? Yeah. Whoa. A thousand tala. 
Aww. what's up? I don't know if it's true, but it's on social media. Like, you know, it's a it's a delicacy. It's like, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, the unfortunately I can't remember what it tastes like. Like I did have it on the spread, but it wasn't yuck or anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when you you really remember something that that's really yucky rather than something that's really nice, I guess. <laughs> because they're sale. Oh no, nah, I don't wanna <laughs> try that again. <laughs> Have you had? Um, I don't even know if they do this anymore. But do they still eat turtle in Samoa? Is that Man, like I don't even know that. Because I used to eat it, like when I was reading from the missionary papers, that was like a delicacy that was oh, only right. eaten on special occasions. Yeah. Are they um particular species? I feel like they are. Mm. But I don't know. Maybe some villages do. Take the now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take the species now. I'll tell you what, I did eat the, the fruit bat. Oh, yeah. What yeah. was that like? That was nice, man. Was nice. <laughs> it reminded me of um of duck. A duck? It reminded me of duck. Mm. Yeah. Sort of like cross between meat and chicken. Like beef and chicken. Yeah. Was there much meat on them? Because they're quite small, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. They're quite small. Yeah. yeah. They're like, um they come out like, oh, we... We barbecued them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like um small small wings. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of size. Yeah. And then how did you catch them? Did you catch them or someone else? No, someone else. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, ju- I just saw them like spread it out like that and take the fur off uh-huh. and the wings and just throw it in the barbecue. <laughs> I couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, those fruit bats, they're like, I guess they'll be healthy, eh? Because they eat fruit all day. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of thinking about Corona, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no. No. Oh, you put me no off. No more bats. You put me off the bat, bat eaters now. <laughs> no, but yeah, like all that research you're doing with the food, that's really interesting. It's, man, it's cool how you're learning all that kind of stuff, eh? Like, you know, like what's the original stuff eh? and how healthy it is or because do you look at like body types and that and does your research go into like um nutrition like the evolution of it like what we used to eat before and then what we're eating now yeah and then how it's changed our body type and that yeah because i reckon that this is just a theory of mine but you know polynesian people we're not we're not um our our body types are not used to like Processed food, like that's why we get so big in that, you know. I think our bodies react to processed food mm. differently to white people, mm. you know. I don't know, but there's some truth to that. Um, a couple of theories saying that, um, like our ancestors, our ancestors, our Polynesian ancestors who were navigating uh, to new lands, to new Pacific islands that their bodies were more um, able to deal with a lot of starch because they had to build up their bodies and their metabolism before they set out and travelled unknown distance, unknown waters to new lands. So there is that theory that Polynesians, which is us, our ancestors, um, we have like a better metabolism of processing starchy foods like our taro, our breadfruit, our bananas and our yams. And so when we come to today, when um, we still have some of those genes within us, um, 
but we're not so much navigating oceans, right? <laughs> we're kind of driving to the supermarkets and getting food and kind of like, well, I, I watch Netflix at home, you know, so not being as active as our ancestors that we're being more at risk of metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes. So yeah, you're, you kind of are right that our bodies were more in tune with being able to have lots of starch, mm. but then we're also living active lives to able to break it down. So it didn't affect us. We were still healthy. But when we're here in 2023, it's, it's a different story. And unfortunately, mm. it's, yeah, it's affecting our health. What's the difference between starch and carbohydrates? I'm still learning this myself. So I, I'm not 100% sure between starch and carbohydrates. We can probably look it up eh, on Google. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, That's yeah. something for me to learn. But it's interesting eh, that because if we're brought up like back in the days, all our lives with that starch, eh, with all that same foods, it's healthy foods, it's organic foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to be lean and we're always doing the work outside that. You know, the men are doing the work outside, you know. And um, like you said, navigating the, the waters and that, like we have to build that met- metabolism. And then all of a sudden, our foods change. And then our bodies aren't used to something we're not used to eating. Eh, like, or, or the Western type foods. Eh? And mm. I think over time, like that, that's why we get the big Samoans, the big Islanders, the big Tongans, you know, that kind of thing that we probably didn't have before. Because I remember when I was in Samoa, I noticed that at the back, like in the villages and that, everyone's mm. skinny. Yeah. But in town, like there's heaps of big people. <laughs> like, you know, there's different body yeah. types. Eh? Yeah. You know, like it just it made me think, you know, as the different foods we're eating. There's the, there's, you have more of a chance if more of a chance in town to eat eat processed foods, um, Western type foods, compared to being organic in the villages and there. there. Yeah, absolutely right. Mm. Yeah, people who live in town are more likely to go to the supermarket and get sangmi like two minute noodles, and plus people are busy as well. Like I'm thinking now, presently, people in Samoa, they're busy, they're families. So sometimes it's easier to kind of just go through McDonald's, go through the drive-thru or go down to the shops and just get some some cheap food because it's cheap food that is unfortunately unhealthy. And like when I think about here in New Zealand, it's the same as well. Like healthy food is so expensive. Mm. Food is expensive, like full stop. So yeah, now we have these unhealthy options whereas whereas our ancestors they just had the food around them the the food from the environment which they had to eat but i was just thinking when you're talking when you said the different types of foods the western foods like they kind of affect or, or kind of how they what was it how they react to or how they develop different body types like i think there might be something around that that I'm, I should mostly look into. But then I was also thinking that when we talk about food and like health, it's not that simple. There's just so many things that, that affect our health. It's like our, what we eat, our lifestyle, our genetics, um, our environment. In some areas, yeah, just fast food takeaways, just everywhere mm. in, in the close proximity, you know. And um, there's just so many factors, yeah. <laughs> mm. and, and probably the other factor is um, there's so many food up there, out there. 
there's so much food now than I think ever before now. Hey, because I don't know if back in the days, back in the old days, when you have you have um, three meals a day, now you can have all sorts. You don't have to have three meals a day. You can have snacks in between and that. I mean, there's there's lots of food out there. I think, yeah, and probably never had that, but never had that um, amount of food that everyone's got got access to mm. and stuff. Yeah. I also read as well, like during the missionaries when they came, they recorded that Samoan people only had two two meals a day. So usually in the morning, and then their biggest meal would be in the evening. Oh. So that's something as well, like how... Eating less. Yeah. Yeah, so they're eating less, doing more exercise. They didn't talk about snacks or anything in between. It's just a different way, a different lifestyle back then. And I guess it's all consumerism stuff, eh? Like, like everyone's trying to make a buck, like going to sell some food. That's right. So you can have... It's, it's like the whole... <laughs> The whole t-shirt thing, everyone's printing t-shirts to <laughs> seen that. Printing t-shirts to sell and like how many t-shirts do you really need, you know? Like <laughs> it's like, yeah. Food is abundance now. Eh? Mm. We've got an abundance of food now. But it's interesting about how um yeah, it's interesting that you, your studies about looking at back in the days because even with um the human human body, like, do you have to get into like a baseline sort of thing? Like what does the human body what's that intake like like what happens if you have carbs versus protein and all that as it like study that as a baseline and then they have a different if ethnicities how if that affects mm. that yeah. um yeah so for, we're kind of looking at one aspect of that in terms of the body so we have um a clinical trial where that means we we look at molding pacifica and they come into um the university and we run assessments of them so we run assessments to look at their body composition using the DEXA scanner I think a lot of um, a lot of athletes use it and it measures their bone density their body fat and muscle mass so it's really interesting with us as Pacifica we will have a different body composition and um, it makes me think of you know the BMI where when we when we take the BMI we're like morbidly obese, right? But with the DEXA it actually shows the distribution of our fat. You know, we could have a lot of bone density but very small fat. Right. And so that gives us a more in depth understand understanding of our body composition, especially as modern Pacifica. And then we want to understand what people are eating. So we did give them like questionnaires and then also how their body responds to a meal. So unfortunately, this study was set up before mine. So the meal is actually just like um, like a protein drink, a protein meal replacement drink, um, muffins that are with um, that are toasted and they have butter and jam on them. And then um, yeah, that's it. And so the person that comes into the clinic, they eat that. And then what we do is we take blood tests of them and we see how their body metabolizes that food through doing um finger pricks so seeing um their blue blood glucose levels spike over time mm. and so for us we're really interested in how people have different metabolisms especially as us as modern pacifica and whether or not that may relate to the type of food that they eat their body composition or even their genetics because mm. we found that there are certain genetics specific to us as pacifica 
that actually relate to type 2 diabetes. So there's this one gene called CREBRF gene, and it's associated with low risk of type 2 diabetes. So if you have the CREBRF gene, you're less likely to have type 2 diabetes. So um, we want to understand why that is, and that's part of the clinical trial that we're doing. Okay, so Polynesian people don't have that gene much? The CREBRF gene is common in Maori oh, Pacifica okay. populations, but it is rare in European populations. All right. Yeah, so it's like, oh, this is specific to us. Yeah. So we're doing that research to on Maori Pacifica people just because... There's actually no research done on that, that gene. A lot of it's done on European populations. Right. So that gene makes us liable to more to, to be um, diabetic? Less. Less. Yeah, less we have diabetic. less risk of um, being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Oh, and what's type 2 diabetes? Type 2 diabetes is when you have too much sugar within the bloodstream. Mm. So that can affect your eyes, um, you know, vital organs. You can be very sick from it. And so um, people usually have medication just to um, help with the blood, blood glucose levels. So yeah. we've got less of that gene. We have, we, um, so we are, if we have the Krebarov gene, that means we are like less, less uh, of a lesser risk of getting type 2 diabetes. Oh, lesser risk. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Okay. Yeah. But we are getting diabetes. But we are, yeah. So what does that mean? <laughs> so not everyone has the Krebrev gene. Right. So we're wanting to understand um, if there are other genes out there that can help us um, see if they relate to type 2 diabetes. So if a person goes in for, say for instance in the future, a person goes into the doctors for a blood test and the Pacifica, and they and they have the these certain types of genes, then we're able to give them medicine that can help them in terms of their genetics. Um, yeah, I don't know where you, I was going with that actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just means that we can, we can treat them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But like you said, we're still getting type two diabetes is still an issue. In all Pacific populations, and also worldwide, it's it's quite a chronic disease worldwide. So if the Balinese have don't have that gene because it's rare for for them, that means they're more liable to have type two diabetes, right? Mm, not not so much because there's also other genes and oh, other okay. factors as well that counter that that yeah. help them out. Yeah. Oh, shucks, that's that's out of the So that that's not like so. So out of all that that data you 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 get from all these um Pacifica Maori c- mm-hmm. coming in for tests and that what other than the gene thing what's the most common thing that they have that other people don't have like with their um the composition you say yeah. their, their their body well we have a criteria of of people who can come in so there's specific age also BMI as well, um, and they don't have any pre-existing conditions like diabetes or anything like that. But we're not sure until we look at the data on what's you know the most common thing when we look at them. Mm. Yeah, but we're we're wanting to understand more the genetics and see how they relate to, or if they even relate to, a person's body composition or metabolism. Um, and get more of an understanding around that because there's no research that that's out there that can link the two at all mm. 
And so a lot of people kind of like, oh, you don't need to look at genetics. What we need to do is help people live um, active, active lives and eat healthy food. But there's also another train of thought of looking at genetics and how we can pe- help people through administering them medicines by understanding their genes. Mm. So at the end of all this, like your pet, your 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 thesis, mm-hmm. well, I know you're studying the food and that, but, but what is the ultimate goal for, for, your, for your thesis? Yeah, I'm wanting to give evidence around the Samoan traditional diet to be a diet that we can say, hey, if you are pre-diabetic or even if you have diabetes, we would recommend that you eat this diet because it's going to be beneficial for you. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that we can really help our communities by kind of relearning our culture and getting yeah like getting the advice from our ancestors and using that knowledge today and also understanding more about our Samoan culture yeah is that because of all the the diabetes the diabetes problem we have of our people in that and of obesity and that is that the reason why I want to? Like, is that is that some of the things why we, we need to s- sort of find out how to how to control that? Yeah, I think yeah. Um, there's a lot of great research being done, mm. and a lot of programs like um, the Butterbean program. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, that's been really great, but there's hasn't been anything that has been successful long term that has worked for us as Pacifica, mm. and so I feel like the traditional diet could be one of the solutions to help us mm. along with you know many other things as well mm. but i felt like food was a good place to start because i i like food yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have, is there any examples overseas like with indigenous foods that helping their society now or anything like that um i know in hawaii that like done a lot of great um indigenous work around their foods and trying to reclaim um indigenous agriculture so i know they've been um growing it's like terracing so apparently their ancestors they grew their crops by terracing them so it's like um it would be like one platform that have galo and another platform lower that have um banana and somehow the all the ecosystem will kind of join together so i think they've done really great work in terms of that knowledge I'm not sure about the diet, and I haven't read anything about other, like, um, research in terms of the Hawaiian diet. Yeah. But there must be, I I should really, I need to look at other indigenous cultures as well. Because I was thinking, um, um, like, the Alaskan cultures, I remember just seeing them eating a lot of, um, like, whale meat things like that there'd be a lot of great not um research around that as well mm. health benefits of that yeah i just had the thought of the um aborigines in australia how mm. they did the fire thing they used to burn the burn the land and they yeah that was interesting because like, wasn't that um like a way to prevent further fires they would burn off um like areas to prevent the fire from yeah they had that as well yeah like they they would yeah, so to avoid fires, eh? mm. uh, to avoid a, a bigger fire from Bush happening, fire, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll burn a certain part of the land. Eh? And I think that they came hand in hand with how they um, hunt, hunt for their food. Because I've seen that, how they hunt. They, they burn the area, and then there's all these burnt, um, 
Uh, I don't know what they are, but they're massive like lizards. Ah, oh, they're and, lizards. And they just grab them and eat them like they're already they're already cooked. Oh. <laughs> You'd think the lizards would crawl away from the fire. Oh, I don't know what they are. They're the big ones. They're big. They're, mm. like that big. they're in the holes and they're all burnt. Oh, they were in the holes yeah. in the burrows. Oh, yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. True. There's, there's a cool documentary on Netflix called Fire. Fire, okay. Yeah. It's a uh, there's American guy. He's in the barbecues and he goes around the world, and he, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. But does your research go into like that kind of stuff too, like how we cooked back in the days, the way we cooked? Yeah, the um, use of fire and, and fishing techniques and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, I should really, because I only that's a good point. I only read about um, the umu, so the traditional Samoan oven where we use rocks and above ground and also mussy pits um have you heard of them they're like pits that they used to dig in the ground and then um throw in breadfruit um if they had like a big harvest of breadfruit and had a lot of leftover breadfruit they'll throw it into a pit lined with um banana leaves taro leaves sorry banana leaves breadfruit leaves and then they would cover over the pit with more leaves and they could leave it up to a year or like six months and then when they needed the food, all of the breadfruit was fermented. Mm-hmm. Apparently it smelled like bad cheese. Um, but when they got the fermented breadfruit, they would shape it into bread loaves and then they cook it in the umu. So it'd be like a breadfruit bread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and those were the only two things that were mentioned, umu and masi pits in the records. But you made a really good point about fishing techniques. Yeah, I haven't read anything about that. But I feel like when I'm talking to people who have that knowledge about salmon food, someone must be able to bring that up. Mm. That would probably be a clue, eh? If they yeah. know the old ways of doing it. Like yeah. They'll probably understand what they're eating back in the day. You know? Because 18, when did the missionaries get to salmon? 1830. So it'd be hard. That's why it's hard. Eh? It's, just, it's to know anything before that. Because mm. yeah. did the missionaries bring their own food as well? Like, yeah. They introduced animals eh? Um, oh, I think the Germans did. I'm not sure about the missionaries. Because yeah. the Germans, they, they, I think they used a lot of donkeys to, to transport the like the coconuts for the right. copra industries. Yeah. I'm not sure about the missionaries. Mm. Mm. And And pigs too, like yeah who, who brought Pigs. those oh i'm not sure because when um the missionaries wrote about the pigs hmm they wrote as if they had been there a long time because yeah. they said the like boa pigs and chicken were only used in ceremonial events so they were very uh what do you call it like prestigious foods and they weren't commonly eaten. Mm. So meat like that was special, that type of food. So yeah, there must have been, maybe before missionaries, the pigs came. Because mm. mm. it's, it's big in Tonga, I heard. I know, <laughs> no. yeah. Yeah, they loved it. <laughs> they, they're good at cooking their pigs, but you'd think, hey, like, if it was there before. Or... Because there, there's a lot of stories about how, even other places, when the... The colonists come introduce new animals, eh? That's right. And stuff, and and then 
Because I know there's that place in, in Hawaii, there's an island with a whole lot of um, elk. Elk? Yeah. It's, it's like Can a deer. I... Oh, deer, yeah. Yeah. And there's like so many of them. Like, So they invite hunters to go and hunt them because there's, uh... there's like just too many. But that was brought in mm. ages ago, sort of thing. But I'm, I can th- when I think of elk, I think of like Himalayan colder climates, but they must be like a tropical elk or something. I don't know. <laughs> Just evolved to a tropical one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm. So far, wow. so yeah, I think you should you should go this Hawaii to get, get some more info. You're, so, gi- you're giving me good questions to think about, yeah, because I. Sometimes when we do research, we get so involved with it. So I'm really happy. Yeah, you're asking all those questions. It's really good. Yeah, because, man, because when I think of salmon food, I always think of carbs. And when I think of the the, the, the bottom plate, you know, with your sapsui, with your rice and your, your kalo and your, and your fai, that's just all carbs. <laughs> you know? It's like... <laughs> yeah, it's carbs. <laughs> carbs on carbs, yeah. <laughs> So I don't know if that. See if we went back to the old ones, it'll be like, it'll be your yams. What is yams? Is that? It's I've actually never had it, but it looks like. Uh oh, what's the word for the giant kalu? Ta'amu. Oh yeah. The big. Yeah. It kind of looks like that. So it's big in that size, but it's not as skinny. It's kind of like fat mm. in some areas yeah but i don't know what it tastes like um and it's not commonly eaten now eh no yeah so i was really surprised to read about yams being common food back then and i wonder why they don't grow it as much now in samoa mm. 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 have you been to any um any restaurants have you been to um michael Meredith's restaurant no didn't that shut down i have been a new one in um oh. in Britain. Oh, Brit Amount, okay. I don't know what it's called. Um, but he shut down his one in Dominion Road. Dominion Road, yeah, yeah I saw that one. He had the, um, the, what do you call it? The pisupu in his, uh, his menu. Oh. Have you been? No, I saw it on TV. Oh. Like, it was me. Yeah. He did those, um, those degustations. Real fancy food, but he used um, food ingredients from um, Otara Food Market. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. I, have you seen the menu now? Is it? No. Like someone, I should have. That's a good point. I should have a look as well. She's not a question. I messaged him on Facebook, but I think he's just so busy he hasn't replied. Oh, yeah, yeah, he yeah, was like, be. "Oh yeah, I'm keen." And then I was like, "Cool. What's the best way to contact you?" And I was like, "No reply." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Okay, <laughs> you must be busy." Because <laughs> he'll be a good um, person to talk to you about. Because he knows the traditional foods, like the modern day traditional foods, eh? and how does he integrate it with um the western foods now eh, and make it fancy or make it like you know those top shelf type of uh yep type of meals there eh? yep yeah i felt like he'd be a really good person to go to especially chefs because i know mm. the meaning behind the foods and how, what works for them and in terms of like the flavors and how they come together yeah, for them as yeah. a chef yeah because you know what i'm impressed with when i watch those um those cooking shows when the chef talks about the science behind the flavors and the the chemical reaction when this mixes of that. And I'm like, man, this guy is like... <laughs> <laughs> chemical reactions. <laughs> um, there was another chef that I contacted. Um, Wallace. Wallace Moore. He's a Samoan chef. 
mm-hmm. and apparently he's a new up and coming chef as well. So, but um, he hasn't replied to me either. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'd love to talk to him as well about Samoan foods because the chefs have so much knowledge and a different perspective as well. Mm. So, yeah, that'd be cool to talk to them. Because if you want to talk about the future of foods, eh, where's it going to go? Mm. Like, what, what what have you found? With um, I know you're studying about the past and all that, but what's what? What's the future going to bring? Are we going to change the way we eat our foods? Is is New Zealand born Samoans or Pacifica now? Because we're in New Zealand. Mm. Like, is this going to, is our foods going to be different to the island foods and that kind oh. of stuff? I think, I don't think that's up to me to answer. I feel like that's too, I feel like the next generation. Yeah. <laughs> I know there are a lot of good um, modern day recipes of Samoan. Uh, Pacifica foods like the Pacific Heart Foundation they have a really good recipe and they've, they've tailored them so they're not as heavy on fats and like salt and things like that um, and then we have you know amazing chefs like Michael Meredith and Wallace as well but I don't know I think that's up to everyone else and how they want to interpret the new foods because mm. I you know it's really hard to compare <laughs> lifestyles in the 1800s to today and it's really hard to compare foods then compared to now because it's just so different so I feel like we can make our own variation of our foods and develop our culture so that it can be more um, relatable to us nowadays because mm. I think it's important I think it's, I think people like Michael Meredith and, and Wallace mm. are important too to promote our foods in that way yeah because I think that is the future and integrating that our traditional foods into the modern day cuisine their way like it's really important i think because like i always thought like how come we don't have more like island restaurants around mm. like serving our food you know like i know when you go to samoa now there's a lot of european um westernized food there's a lot of cafes now in samoa that that are cooking like um like steak and barbecues and all that kind of stuff. And um, even um, Indian food now is in Samoa, you know, and, and Chinese food, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, like our foods, like we, we eat our foods, right? And and we love our foods, our mm. home-cooked meals and that. And um, how come that doesn't get pushed into like um, being, a, being a takeaway or a restaurant? Because, like, yeah. you know, the... the the Indians do it with their, their butter chicken. That's right. The Chinese do it with their Chinese food. But it's not really traditional yeah. Chinese food. It's just mm. Chinese food made to the European taste. But you get the idea, eh? It's like they're bringing in their own stuff to to cater for the masses here in, 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 in New Zealand. But when I think of um, of of the hangi, like there's been hangi places... Um, before, but then they never really lasted. I remember back when I was a kid, there was a place in Henderson called I think it was called Billy T. James Takeaway. Oh, cool! I don't know if you remember it, <coughs> but um, it was just hangi, right? Oh. Right, but it wasn't there for long. But even hangi, hangi is nice. Like the only, only yeah. place I can get hangi now is going to the um, the Pacifica Festival. Ah, oh. and they had the. The Aotearoa stage, mm-hmm. and they they sold it there. But you know, other than that, but that's the New Zealand food. That's New Zealand tr- indigenous New Zealand food. You know, like well, why isn't there more of that? 
And when you when, when I think when tourists come over, I, I want them to eat our food, that kind of food, eh? You know, but there's now I've talked to people before about this, and they say, oh, because of the rules, because of the council rules, you can't make a fire outside your backyard and stuff like that. You can't dig a hole, and you have to use the machine, kind of thing. Yeah, I was gonna say because they have um, what is it, the hungry machine? Yeah, yeah. And I feel like that's an adaption to to Maori culture, bringing it into making it more accessible for us in our lifestyle mm. and i feel like that's okay you know and we could have something similar for us like a portable umu or something yeah. you know um yeah because i was thinking when you're talking about the restaurants in samoa there's not a place where oh, maybe two places but they only sell the food on sunday mornings that you can go to and buy umu mm. you know and I can't understand that because people have their own umos in their backyards. But I'm talking about that supermarket in town. That, yeah. That you, you got the back and there's all the, the pots that you yeah. just grab all your umo food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I found that I found that was um that was new when I went there. Oh. Because I no, no, the place wasn't new when I went, but it was new for me to experience that because you know, I'm used to like I think like everyone wakes up early on Sunday morning to go outside and do the umo outside. But then living in town, like everyone's going to not that everyone. place, yeah, because no one's doing the umu anymore. No, they're not. You know, it's like it's being westernized, right? Yeah, like people are too not lazy, but it's more convenient. The convenient things coming in, mm-hmm. yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah, that, that place was packed on Sunday morning. Yep, it oh. is, mm. and they were expensive. I think, from what I remember, mm. but I mean, people are still buying food there. Yeah, so it'd be nice to have like an umu shop here and. In New Zealand, I'm sure people do that. Do do that. But you see, you still get your island takeaway places. Yeah. Here and there, you get an Odohu. Yeah. Um, I know Henderson, opposite Henderson High School. When that. Oh yes, I came across that. That's how shop there. Yeah. The how long have they been there? Probably a couple three years. Yeah, maybe? I think I came across them end of last year. Mm. So happy because I um. Because I live out west, so it's really cool to have an island shop near us yeah, yeah, <laughs> instead yeah. of going all the way out south. Yeah. yeah, but have that like because you know only islanders are going to go there. Yeah, you know all sorts of people go to Indian food. Get mm, all sorts of people get. I see. Get butter chicken. All sorts of people get Chinese. Like you know when I'm sure we got the space for us to be in that kind of level of um, like in the food court. You know, when you go to food court, you mm. can go get your butter chicken. Like. St. Luke's or any food court, any, any more, you know, like, what can, what could be our sort of brand, our franchise, and, and what foods can we, you know, I like it. Could we make that, that everybody can eat, you know? That's exciting. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. I was just thinking like, as a researcher, I don't know if that would help, but you know, when some diets, like Mediterranean diet or like, you know, eat sushi, it's healthy for you. Like to have research behind a food that sometimes draws people in because they're right. like, oh, it's healthy for yeah. us because they say so. <laughs> yeah. So kind of, yeah. Although I've never thought about that, having our place in the food court. Yeah. It'd yeah. be so cool. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of like shows that <coughs> we are like an everyday takeaway food. In New Zealand, yeah, exactly. that's part of our culture, and that's why I, 
I asked you if you interviewed yeah. these um, chefs because they'll be the best people to try to figure out what that is. Mm. I see when, when I see the plate, the subsui, the color of the I don't think that's presentable for <laughs> for everybody. Eh? When yeah. they see that, you know, to us it's like yeah, yeah. get in there. But to a balang is like, eh? mm. but how do we make it? You know, they mm. the appeal to them. Yeah. Yeah. To appeal to every, anyone, anyone sort of thing. Because even Samoa doesn't do that any justice either, because all their stuff is like European stuff. <laughs> hey, <laughs> if you get if you go over there and eat at the cafe and say, yeah, get to a restaurant. Well, they say they use local foods, but it'll be like tomato and yeah. like kafisi and watercress. Yeah, yeah, and fish. Yeah, but not like oh, I've seen galo chips, but or breadfruit chips, but yeah. I saw um when I was there I saw man my favorite was the was the nachos that they used um Ooh. they used taro chips. Oh yeah. The big ones. So Where it was looked, that? It looked like nachos but it's taro chips they use. Where was that? That was at um at the edge. The edge. Marina. Yeah, the marina. Go about to Z again? Uh where's that? Um where the nightclubs are. Um in front of um I know. With the ice cream? Yeah, in front of the ice cream yes. place. Yeah. Oh yes, it's a nice restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. The one that, uh, on the on the water. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I know that. And they've got a um a club inside, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the I oh, went there for the for the nachos. <laughs> Not the club. Tower chips, eh? Tower chips, man. That was my favorite. But it was cool how they said put the, it was tower chips, like it actually goes, you know. Things like that, like see that we could, yeah. we could use that. But then uh, the other thing is, it's so expensive to buy even frozen galo here. Mm. That's the problem. It's the price, unfortunately. And like, what's frustrating thing is we can't grow galo here. We can only grow the taro leaves. We can't grow breadfruit here. So it's trying to find something that is going to be cost-effective for our families, going to be healthy for us, and it's going to, yeah, it's mainly be healthy for us. It doesn't, yeah. Because remember last time you came and you talked about we were working over there in Samoa, like, trying to get um, the breadfruit over here. Like, um, how were you guys doing it? Like, trying to make it, because it was a fruit fly, it was a problem, eh? So I was trying to get it over here. Because the reason why we, we don't want it here because of the fruit fry. Yep. Yeah. So they had to do a lot of um, like tests to see if, um, I can't remember what it was, but if maybe it could have been like fruit fly eggs could survive on the breadfruit. Right. So they had to do, there's a treatment where you do hot water dipping to get it, all the eggs off the breadfruit. And then they would um, pretend that, they had these incubators and they pretend that um, the breadfruit was being flown because they would be air air shipped from, or was it air shipped or? All right. It was either by, um, either by boat or by airplane. I can't remember. So you had to mimic the travel. Yeah, to see if they were able to stay fresh for that time. So I can't remember where they got with that research. 
Yeah, because I was asking that where, yeah. where they got to. <laughs> I mean, I haven't heard anything more, so maybe it didn't work. <laughs> so maybe no breadfruit. Yeah. <laughs> but definitely the galo, they are is looking pretty good. It's looking like that we're it's more likely that we're going to get taro shipped from Samoa oh, to yeah. Australia. Fresh taro. To Australia. Oh, yeah, okay. so our family in Australia can have fresh Samoan taro. So we're not here. It is here, I, oh, I think. It? Yeah, but... We get more of the Fijian ones, here. Yeah, yeah. I think it must be cheaper or something to, to ship it over here. And I don't know, because whenever I see the Samoan galo, there doesn't seem to be a lot of it, and it's a lot more expensive than the Fijian galo. Um, Why is that? Because there's, there's less of it? or I, I don't know. It must be something to do with the exporting or the businesses. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Mm. Yeah. So how many pages do you have to write? What's your... What's sort of your <laughs> like aim? Well, my first chapter is... I think that's like 13,000 words. And I've got... Um, one, five more chapters to write. Right. So it's going to be quite thick. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a proper book. Yeah. It's 500 words. That's one page, I guess. 500 words. Yeah. And it'll just get published. Um, how it works is that, yeah, it'll be published into a book, but then only the markers will read it. And then they'll give me a... And then I'll have um, a meeting where they'll ask me in detail about my research just to see if I understand it and how I um, have dealt with some of the difficulties through the journey. And then they will say, oh, cool, she's passed, she can get a PhD. Or no, she needs to do more work and do some editing and then she can get her PhD. And then that's it. So the actual book is really only read by the markers and myself and my supervisors. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. But um, those ones that you can access online, how do they yeah. get? How do they get put there? Is that everybody's? Everyone who does a master's or PhD or even an honors, their thesis will be put on the university's website. Mm-hmm. That's just standard. Yeah. Mm. Have you had? A, have you seen examples where one person's thesis like just blew up in terms of like it's just the thing to do now? Like oh. their research has discovered. Something that everyone's looking into and moving on with it. Yeah. Has there been any examples of that? Because I, I, I guess that would like encourage a lot of, a lot of people in their in their research. I mean, I haven't come across any, but there must be. I think there's been like trends within research. Um. Uh, like I was thinking, our friends in population health, so they will look at um different ways different models for analyzing things so um for pacifica is pacifica researchers and if we're looking at pacifica people there's not a lot of tools for us to to um kind of collect data and then analyze it in our way so people's phd thesis will be around creating a model to do that so like one type of method is using Thalanoa. so that's discussion um in a using like in a pan pacific way pacifica way so yeah i feel like there's a lot of phds who are like that who are looking at models to help us understand 
um, Pacifica data collection and analysis, but like not a topic that people are like, yeah, let's all focus on that. But there must be some. Like I think in cancer, there must be certain um, like components of that that people look at that be like, okay, that's really key point in the cancer research. So we're all going to kind of research that and go on with that. You know when some of these feces are that are that thing where it it describes a model that people people can use, like how is that presented to people to read and to, to how 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 do we find things like that? Because I, I had a guest on a few few weeks ago, Southwater. Uh, he he did the thesis on time management with Pacifica people because how do you manage your time with church? Time is a Western con- um, construct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But his one was about time, how do we manage time and living in the Western world, living here in, in, in New Zealand. Because we've got all these family obligations. We've got church, mm-hmm. we've got sport, we've got studies. Mm-hmm. And how do we, like, for us, it's everything is equal, right? But how do we manage all that? Because, you know, when it comes to church, we've got to drop everything for church sometimes. And then sport, sometimes we have to sacrifice sport. And we can't not go to school you know but there's a lot on our plates so he had his research around that so his his model i guess was around how to navigate that how to what's the best way for us to to manage our time (laughs) which is which i thought was pretty cool which and i thought as well that i never even thought about that like who who thinks about that like who and 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 this because he's his story was he, he experienced it like he had to drop everything. He had to drop his 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 sports to go to go help his mum clean up the church kind of stuff. But to me, I know that's a problem. I know that's that's a thing. But I never thought it was like a big deal, big deal, you know. But it is. Hey? It is. Yeah. So is that model? So I guess your model would be yeah around health, healthy eating and like proving that. Our traditional way of eating, our traditional tr- traditional foods or organic eating back in the days, are the way to go now. Mm. Mm. That's yeah. That's what I want to try and explore. Yeah. And, and I guess the offshoot of that is is everybody else looking at this research and thinking, wait, we should try this. Mm. Hey, we should we should look into this because it's real. Like it looks real. It's yeah. real. You got all the evidence there. And then that makes me think of um, like the type of people that we want to share the information with. So for me, I feel like research is really important in terms of making decisions. So when we create, when we do research, for me, I want it to make a difference for our community. So I feel like if we, if I had more information about the Samoan traditional diet, that could influence nutritionists. Um, doctors, it could also influence politicians because they may say, oh, this looks interesting. We want to explore this more. So we're going to put funding into this and you can distribute this to more people, distribute it to our communities or do more research behind it. So I feel like it's really important as researchers that we understand who we want to share our knowledge with Mm -hmm. and that in order to make a change, um, and to identify a problem, it also needs to be acknowledged by politics as well. So it's like you mentioned with time management and um, is it Safoto's thesis? It, yeah, things, that's what I like about um, research because they do things 
we do things about topics that you never think about but are actually really important mm. and to acknowledge that time management as a Pacifica person to to write about it and say that's what it's like for us from our perspective especially in, in research because there's not a lot of our voice being heard mm. so yeah mm. I just had a thought there when you talk about um, politics like you know when it comes to like, healthy eating for our people mm. like there's the economic economic thing that's that's um it's like the big elephant in the room because you know you get you get the poor areas where most of our people live in and all all that's around them is the cheap takeaways the cheap unhealthy foods and all of that and because unhealthy food is expensive you know and when you talk about um when you bring the politics into it like and uh when i think about how much power the government has like it seems easy for them just to say okay healthy food drop prices or no more GST on, on fruit, you know, on fruits and veg and that kind of thing. And I, I, yeah, it's it seems like it's easy for me to just just look at that and say, all you gotta do is just snap your fingers and it's gonna happen. But then it's not that easy, eh? It's 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 not that easy. But it's yeah, but that but I think that's a big deal too. On if we were talking about healthy eating for our people, like there's that, there's that as well. So what would would you would your research be around how do we that or that that side of things too, like the economic side of things? I think that will that will definitely be discussed, but that won't be the main um, the main aim of my research. But I think I really need to, you know, it's naive not to acknowledge it because. Uh, you know, it's easy to say to people, oh, eat healthy, you know, eat this diet. But, you know, there's so many things that come into it that, yeah, I definitely need to acknowledge that food is expensive <laughs> and cost of living is expensive for us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And if you think about how we ate back in the days, it's just out there. Eh? It's, let's yeah. go hunt it. Yeah, <laughs> let's go, let's go, go take it from the land or, or go fish it in the sea. Mm kind of thing that i think people still do try, try try to grab their their fishing rod and, and go out to catch some fish i know it's funny because when you're talking about the cost of living going up i went with um my cousins to a cornwallis wharf because they're into because they're into fishing i'm not but i just mm -hmm. went along went along and uh, man so many people fishing there really yeah, I was thinking, man, is that because of the cost of living's gone? <laughs> <laughs> on some free fish. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Mm. You talked about, um, or oh, you mentioned fishing techniques, like in Samoa. Did you do you remember any or like any stories about fishing? Samoa? Uh, non Samoa, but when I went to Hawaii, like yeah. they talked about the um, how they made the. They made those catchment things, like a trap. Hey, it was like. I think Maori did as well. They had eel, like eel traps or something. Yeah. I've seen them woven, and they're kind of like, they kind of go in, eh? And mm. It's like a. Yeah. I've seen those ones. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. They were like a smaller version, but okay. in Hawaii they're the big. They, they just built like a, a wall in the sea and like a whole uh, a gap at the end, so anything that goes in, they can just fish it in here or something. I know really how it works, but there, there was a few of them like from the olden days. Like, 
Hey, oh, did, have you heard that guy, um, Tony Brunt? He's a historian, Samuel historian. He's come on this podcast too. But he's into like um, the old, um, uh, he's into the Europeans that that came to Samuel. He's got all the old photos, old, old photos of them and stuff. He, he, he collects them and, and builds up a story of all the, all, all the, uh, um, half cast or their ancestors and that, and that. But he's he's done research around these rocks that in Samoa that they use for, I think pounding um, I don't know, pounding food or something like that, or mm, like poi. Nah, oh, I forget. I should look it up. But um, it's used for something. It's like a tool. It's like smooth rocks, and but they're everywhere in Samoa. Shows how much I listen back to the old. <laughs> old <laughs> I have to look back at that episode, Tony. Uh, Tony Brunt. Tony Brunt. Yeah. Mm. So where does he get the photos from? He collects them. He, he collects them. They're old, of of families. Mm. Yeah, of families, and he puts together like a a book of all these old and day photos, like in the eighteen hundreds. They're mostly when the when the Germans were here. Oh yeah. When when they first came or around that time. Yeah. Because I've been trying to find old photos of food, and I've found uh-huh. a couple online, but there's not many. Mm. Yeah, and like you can kind of if you squint with some of the old photos, you can make out oh that's sugar cane or that's breadfruit and or like that's a pig. So like gives me an idea of okay, this looked like the feast. And this is the type of food that they will have and how it's presented. Like they usually have them like a leaf, like a banana leaf, and then they just put all the food on the ground and then people sit down and eat the food. Yeah. So it'd be good to, I'd love to chat with Tony to see if he's got photos of, with food in them. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll. He's, on, he's, on, he's on Facebook. You can okay. Just, you, can, you, you can just look him up. He's easy to get hold of. I should, get him, I should get him back. See what he's up to. Because he said he was going to go to... Last time he was here, he was here before COVID too. And I remember asking him um, what's next in his studies and that. And he said he was going to, he was going to go to, to a talk in Germany. Whoa. Yeah. Which was, which was pretty cool. Was, oh, yeah, cool. If you go, I'll, I'll get you to come back and talk about that yeah. trip. Yeah. Because he's a guy that's into all that kind of stuff. But he's not like a professor or anything. Oh. He's just interested in it. And I think he's he's one of the he he's I think he works for the museum in Samoa. Ah. Not works, but he's connected with them. He's part of them. Like he's the one he I think he supplies them with the old old photos mm-hmm. and that stuff like that. Yeah. That'd be really valuable those photos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's cool. He's uh, all the stuff is a hobby for him. Yeah, he just does it on the side and puts it on his uh his page, his Facebook page. Hmm. But uh, oh, you know, I was gonna ask you if you wanted to, you know, how you had your little um, your 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 advertising on um on social media. Mm-hmm. You wanted wanted to interview people. Yeah. I was gonna ask you if you want to interview me right now, like on the podcast, because this will be like your little um. It will be recorded. Yeah. 
I need you to sign a consent form, though. Oh, okay. Um, uh, just because with the university, we have to have, like, go through ethics. Mm. So make sure that, like, me as a researcher and the participant is covered, like, safe. And in terms of, like, their privacy and what's done with their data. Um, so that it's all... So it can't be online or anything? So <laughs> that um, you can't be identified, so that when we publish it, we um, we only publish it like with you as anonymous and just making sure that we don't uh, we wouldn't but like we don't abuse the data and make sure the participants are portrayed in a safe way mm-hmm. yeah but I don't know the consent form me damn it you should have told me before <laughs> I would have bought the consent form <laughs> what if I just give you the consent now you can just do it now. Because, okay. because I read your thing and I was thinking, man, I could, well, what else say? You know, I was I was thinking that. Oh, I've got criteria. Oh, yeah, what? What criteria? Um, you have to have lived in Samoa <laughs> for 20 years. Oh, okay. Okay. No, I'm, uh, <laughs> Damn. One year doesn't count. <laughs> and we wanted that because we thought it would give a nice, like, time period of them when, I assume when they're younger, like a child. Mm. Compared to their, their their teens, so they get a good spread of the type of food they ate, yeah. And then we'd want to talk about their time in New Zealand, so that's why I have to have people who are based in New Zealand, so they can talk about how <laughs> that transition was. Yeah, yeah. like because we can't get breadfruit here, so what did you eat instead? Mm. Yeah, so talking about things like that. Okay, well, how about just um, give a the whole criteria then? For anyone who's listening, that's under that falls under those that ticks all those boxes. Yeah. yeah. So um, the age range is thirty years old to ninety five. So <laughs> we have a quite a like a, the older people we want to talk to. Um, people who've lived in Samoa for twenty years. Um, people who currently live in New Zealand. Um, people who have a knowledge of Samoan foods. And if you feel more comfortable to speak in Samoan, I have a um, research assistant who conducts um, Dalanoa in Samoan for those people as well. And if you um, agree to meet all of those criteria and then you want to have a chat, then at the end of the interview, then you get a $50 pack and save gift voucher. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and how do they find you? They can um, find me on social media, so Samoan Scientist, or my email, um, amy.maslin-miller at auckland.ac.nz. But I've got all the details on my social, social media, Samoan Scientist. Mm. Have you had any um, anyone yet? I've interviewed two people, oh, yeah, which yeah. is really good. Yeah. Um, <coughs> I love talking to, yeah, I love talking to them about salmon foods because with both of them, they would immediately go to a memory, a really vivid memory when they were younger, mm. and it was so interesting because they talked about it in so much detail, and it was really. Um, I don't know, I guess it's like podcasting for you. I just love hearing that story and it's just so interesting. I loved it. Yeah. 
Um, but I'm looking for more people. So we're aiming to talk to 30 people. Um, and so that so that's, uh, allows me to get a range of voices heard and a range of stories so that we can identify key themes about what people understand about Samoan traditional foods and how that has changed over time when they've come to New Zealand. Mm. That's cool. I was just thinking about talking to my mommy about it because... I remember when I was young, and what we ate, like, like we didn't really go out much to eat out. So she she usually cooked, and it was usually sapsui, uh, and rice, um, and kalo, and and, fai, and, um, and chicken, and just beef and that. But, I mean, I remember when I was young, like, I, I didn't like some of the foods, because I, I was real fussy when I was a kid. But I was amazed that my parents, like, they'll just eat everything in. <laughs> like, the, the meat off the bone and all that stuff. I was always impressed with that. Mm. Like, man, how can you, like, you know, like, just bones, <laughs> like, there's no meat on anything, you know? <laughs> that kind of stuff. You see that meme on social media of the you oh, yeah. <laughs> the different types of, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of chicken eaters. But there are the ones of, no, just the bone and nothing on it. They're just clean. And I was always impressed with that, eh? you know? And, you know, yeah, but I've, you just made me think about, like, that's probably what, how they were eating back home, eh? Like, back in Samway, back in the days, like, hmm. Yeah, I think I should have a chat to her, eh? see what she ate. Yeah. Because I'll ask her the same questions too, eh? Like, how was the food when she came to New Zealand? Mm. Yeah. And, like... I was just thinking, when you come to a new place, food is kind of the last thing you think about as well. I mean, there must have been so much pressure when I think of my parents coming to New Zealand. Um, you know, some people came over with no family, or they didn't know anyone, and everyone spoke a different language to them, you know? And everyone wore different um, clothing, you know, buildings are different over here in New Zealand. Must have been tough for some people coming from the islands to New Zealand <laughs> mm. <coughs> those two people you talked to that they described that as well how different things were um, one one lady um, she was lucky because she already had family here which was she said that helped her a lot and they were lucky in that they were able to get a job straight away so I feel like that was easy for her. But then we didn't talk much about the culture and how it was. And then the other person, um, we didn't really talk about that change too much. Mm. Just more that the food was different, yeah. Mm. I remember when, uh, when I first went to Samoa, like, the first thing I, I noticed was the food, eh? like how fresh it was and how flavoursome it was. Like, I don't even know, like, was it because of the air was different there? Or why was the food so fresh and so flavoursome, you know? Like, I could, you could taste everything. It's like, you have the same steak here and that same steak over there is different. I don't know. <laughs> or even the the normal foods, like the subsui and and all the, you know, everything else. Like, well, the salmon foods you eat here are bland compared to the salmon foods over here, over there, you know? It's like... So flavoursome. I think it's because it's so fresh, eh? So fresh. Yeah, you're right. 
um, I definitely noticed that as well. Yeah. Like I miss Samoan galo in Samoan yeah. because it does taste different here in New Zealand. And I think um, that reminded me as well when sh- food is shipped here, like galo or the bread, um, the fai, the banana, they're usually treated with, um, oh, I forgot the spray, but it's just a spray so that no um, like insects or fungal um fungal diseases are on those foods when they get here to New Zealand so I'm sure that must have an effect on like nutritional content and flavor as well Mm. and plus they've been shipped so they're not as fresh compared to you know you can just go and harvest some galo when you're in Samoa so yeah I was just thinking that has when we when we're choosing Samoan Pacifica foods here they will be of different nutritional value compared to when they're picked fresh, like in Samoa. Mm. So, yeah, I think that was just a note for my research as well to remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially the fresh, eh? The seafood. Yeah. So yeah. fresh, eh? The, the sashimi, like, so fresh. Oh, yum. And the okra and that. Oh, I just want to go. <laughs> feel like eating that, no? But, man, that's... Yeah. I just want to go back now. That's good. Cool. So what's happening for you next uh, f- few weeks? Next few weeks? Because um, we've got the storm coming in. Yeah. Oh, Have fine. you um, <laughs> bought <laughs> anything? Because <laughs> they said to um, stock up, eh? Three days. I heard that, yeah. So I know my work said, oh, take your computers home because yep. you might have to stay home Monday, Tuesday. But it's funny because I always already took Monday off because I want to go watch. I want to watch the Super Bowl. Ah, oh, true. But now we're staying home anyway. I should take my annual leave back. Eh? Give yeah, it, give it back. Yeah, <laughs> you should. But they don't know. They said it's category three. Three. They said it was category three, but I feel like when it's traveling down to us, don't they usually kind of go down in their categories when they're traveling a distance? I think so, isn't it? The further they go, the the less strong it gets. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of hoping for that. But I but we did buy some food for the animals this morning because I heard on the radio as well that we had to get um, stock up. Mm. And so I'm thinking of buying some butane gas for our... We have like a... What is it? Like a camping cooker? Yeah. So that if our power goes off, then I can just He's cook got that. with that. Yeah. yeah. Because we live in a rural area and the power goes off quite often. So All right. if yeah. it's going to be windy, the power's must be going to go off. Was it going off during the flood? That Luckily, day? no. But um, some of the other storms it has. Right. Because I know, um, I think it was to the rangi. Mm. They had power cuts and no water even. Yeah. It was really bad. Yeah. It's funny because... <laughs> The whole problem with that first flood, because Auckland was too slow to react in terms of like the warnings and mm-hmm. all that, the Wayne Brown got in trouble for <laughs> being slow. So now he's like going hard, like, got to stock up three days. And everyone's getting like, oh shit. <laughs> That's what I think. Hey? He's like, I stuffed it up the first time. <laughs> so now we're going to exaggerate everything and just over prepare. Yeah. So that's one kind of like, mm, I don't know if it's going to happen. But um, because, so my mum's in Kumiu and she got um, flooded really bad in the 
two years ago. Was it two years ago? No, a year ago. Yeah, yeah. In those floods. They didn't do anything about it. Like, they didn't fix And any... they didn't do anything. Mm. And the drains were blocked and everything. So then when we heard of this recent flood, we kind of knew what to expect. So it wasn't as traumatic, but a lot of our paddocks were flooded and we had um, a lot of our stuff in our garage was flood damaged. But it was a lot worse than the floods a year ago and again like when we're driving around Kimiu and going out like Helensville ways nothing's been done they're just replacing what they had done la- what they did last time what mm-hmm. the what the um floodwaters had done last time it's just so frustrating yeah it's funny because I don't know if you listen to another podcast inside the clip but we're talking about how um in the bible with Noah's Ark yeah. That whole story about Noah's Ark, like be prepared for the coming storm. No matter what it is, it might not come or anything, but just be prepared. You know, build that big ark. You know, no one believed anything was going to happen. But when it did happen, he was safe because he was in the ark. But that was all about being prepared. Like, you don't know if it's going to come. Just, just just make sure. And then if it doesn't come, well, then. At least you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah should be prepared. <laughs> But then all that all that water, like obviously our drainage is not big enough. Like the the big the big I think the big upgrade will be to get all those underground pipes and if they're like five hundred wide, make them a meter wide. Mm-hmm. Or if they're a meter wide, make them two meters wide, you know. That's a that's a big massive job. It is. Yeah, I was just thinking like in some of the areas, um, like further out west, the water was still flood like sitting in paddocks like at least a week after the floods so it kind of shows you know there's something really wrong with the drainage around there and even with some of the drains they've just got so much rubbish in them but the council doesn't come around and clean them out it's kind of like yeah something does need to be done and then I heard someone made a point about how new housing development like Hobsonville they didn't get flooded but a lot of the older areas did because bad drainage Mm. Mm. So they probably have upgraded the when they build new subdivisions, mm. the drainage have to be a certain size, and they're probably bigger than what they were before. Yeah. <laughs> Three hundred mils, they said, was going to drop this weekend, and I think that's more than what happened that Friday. Really? Yeah, I think Friday was like two hundred and fifty, two hundred fifty mils of water, and this one's going to be three hundred plus. I really hope not. I don't know. I just feel like it's not going to happen. A lot of people think that. Even my work. <laughs> like, no, uh, like um, drowning, I'm swimming home or something. <laughs> no, nah, because when the, when, the, when the emergency thing came on, yeah, my work just jumped into gear and said, okay, everybody take your computers home because you might stay home Monday and Tuesday. But then people, oh, nah, it's not going to happen. Nah, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> because all that water stuff, man, I don't understand it eh? because it's like a boy who cry wolf, eh? They say it's going to happen, but it doesn't happen. Then if they say it doesn't happen, it happens. You know? So, you know, Noah's Ark makes sense. Be prepared mm. no matter what. Yeah. I'm going to do a big shop tomorrow, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Just get what I need for a couple of days. And then I'm prepared. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the winds that I'm worried about as well. We are on top of a hill. And when there's no storm, it can get really windy. So. All right. So the roof might fly. Yeah, that's another thing, you know, wind and rain. 
<laughs> That'll be interesting. <laughs> Do you think this is like climate change kind of thing? But is it is that because of is that because man is a big factor in this, or is it just the way the Earth is like up and down, up and down? Yeah, I've heard different. I've heard both sides, but I'm not really. Yeah, I, I haven't looked at the science behind it. But I feel like it's a bit hard to ignore about with all the um. Like it's a man-made problem, just because of all the big industries, all the big factories. It's just. Mm. Yeah, because the problem it's I have with that argument is that yeah, New Zealand is playing their part, but then I don't, I don't think New Zealand playing their part is enough. Oh no! Like, what's the point no. of us doing this when China doesn't do anything or yeah. America doesn't do anything, or these big countries that are putting a carbon footprint in the air? You know, mm. I think that's like you know, like we, we well, we're playing our part. Just we we don't want to use cars anymore. Yeah, but then that's. <laughs> It's like pointless because yeah, it's no pointless. one else, yeah. the bigger players aren't cooperating. And I feel like no one's going to agree to anything. No. It doesn't look like anyone's going to agree to anything. So, yeah. So I think all this, like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't get too involved with like the different narratives and all that with the climate change. It's like, oh, you're a climate change guy and oh, blah, blah, blah. Mm. You know, but I don't even know what the answer is. See, I don't even know if, if, of man is doing it, helping it along, mm. or or if they are, but to me it's like, well, what is the solution? Because right now I see the solution is not. That's not the solution. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely something is not right. <laughs> yeah. You can just tell by the number of weather events that we're having. I was thinking as well the other day. Um, I'm doing waka armor training, and we're paddling out. Um, like near Mission Bay, there's a club there. And the water was so warm there, and it's never usually that warm. It was just really strange. Mm. Yeah, so things like that you definitely notice around your environment that are not how they should be. Because you know how every every Christmas now it's been raining, eh? Like, yeah. Like last five, six years, it has been raining. It's been bad weather. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been... Because I remember, I remember the first thing was summer didn't come until like February. And now it's like rain, and when February it's raining still, you know we never had that before. Yeah. yeah. And it's almost like it's like we got a tropical weather now yeah, in New Zealand. Like we've got whenever wet season and the dry season, <laughs> but with the hot and cold of the winter and the summer, you know. That's so true, because I mem- um, I think it was the floods that we had. There were some days where it was just so humid. Almost like a cold day in Samoa, you know, that type of humidity. Mm. And I've never experienced that in New Zealand ever, only in Samoa. So, yeah, it's definitely, things are different. Mm. Even though, because our winters haven't been that cold now, eh? No. I remember when they were freezing. Mm -hmm. And I can tell when you walk out into the car and it's it's frosted. Mm. Now, it it hasn't been frosted that much. Like, maybe once. But I remember it was being frosted like a whole month all the time. I know this because I always come out with the with the jug of water, jug. <laughs> pour out of the car. Now how do you do that now? Because it's not frosted. Mm. You know? So it is changing now. The, the temperature is changing. You you talked about, or did you say that there? Um, 
something about solutions for climate change. Yeah, I don't know what they are. Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't believe this, what we're doing as a country is the solution. I mean, yeah, sure, it's a solution if everybody in the world doesn't. <laughs> but everyone <laughs> in the world is not doing that. No way. So uh, what are we trying to do? Give an example to the rest of the world that doesn't care about New Zealand? See, the way I see it, like, you're going to have the people to talk about climate change. Like, it's it's like um, man-made. And it's the it's those rich countries. It's the people polluting. It's the rich people polluting. To me, that's just it's not like an excuse to go against those people. Like it's always been about people that are oppressed, you know, and speaking up to the people that are not sort of thing. I think that's more the story than climate change itself. I don't think it's based on fact. It's based on it's it's the best story. It's a story because that's all you hear. You don't hear any counter arguments. You don't even hear any evidence. Like I don't even know what the, I don't even know what the evidence is. I don't know where to find the evidence, and 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 that's the problem because you don't know where to where to find, to find the truth. See, I want to know if if man is causing or helping climate change along. Like that's a that's a simple, for me to me that's a simple, a question to be answered. That who where where do I go to find the answer? If I go to one place, they're gonna tell me yeah yeah, it's not it's not it's not man. If it goes another place, no, it is man, it is man. So who's right? Yeah. You know, so I don't know. So I just Yeah, there must be research on that. There must be. But I think like all research it must maybe conflicting. I don't know. Mm. But then um when you're talking about how New Zealand was setting an example for other countries, but it kind of feels pointless because the bigger countries aren't doing their part. But then you then what do you do? You just kind of feel helpless. Do you just kind of watch it all burn, wash away, sail away? <laughs> <laughs> and I get it. Like some of the islands are, are sinking right now. Eh? Some islands, like there won't be an island in the next what fifty years or something like that. Eh? They'll be totally un- underwater. So you feel for them. But see, like see, see that's the thing. It's easy to blame. I think it's easy to blame someone with with all the money, all the power, than to say, oh, that's just the earth. It's just Mother Nature doing its thing. Like, like I've heard, like, like you know, you know, the history of the Earth. Like, millions of years before humans came, Earth was like cold, and then hot and cold, and it had its ups and ups and downs. Eh? Like, humans couldn't live in Earth's environment for what sixty percent of his whole life, or something like that. Like, m- maybe we're coming to a time where Earth's going. Going into like another ice age or something like that. Like, see, ice age, man didn't. Of course, man didn't made ice age. Mm-mm. There was dinosaurs, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, see, dinosaurs are a good example too, because dinosaurs, when dinosaurs roam roam the earth, it's like okay, that's a living being, right? Live animals, whatever, and then they just got wiped out. Mm-hmm. If they were humans, we would got wiped out too. Whatever happened with the with the with the meteor or the or the carbon or whatever what was the other one? It was the meteor or the um, change in the environment was the was the volcanoes I think every vo- volcano on Earth exploded carbon dioxide just killed everyone. Like see that that sounds scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds scary. Yeah. <laughs> but see, they're not man-made stuff. That's just Earth doing its thing. 
so there is evidence for that. So, so now is it Earth doing its thing, or is it man? Is it man-made? So I don't know what the answer is, and I'm not gonna pick a side because I don't know what the answer is. So, but so it's sad yeah. either way. <laughs> yeah, it's sad either way. Yeah. Hmm. But I, I believe in. I believe in science, you know. I, I believe in science, but how do you find the right science? Is that the problem now? Hmm? Is that the problem now? Finding the right science that's not political. It's hard, isn't it? Because <laughs> to an extent, science is political in a way, because it depends who you're funded by to do the research, yeah. you know. And then you also have the researchers who may be biased mm. as well. And then you have the way you conduct research. Can you can do it so many ways? One way may be more accurate than another. So it's 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 um it's hard sometimes <laughs> to to understand what is the right science. But I think generally, if you see a lot of research coming out that um is of one opinion, then that kind of gives you confidence that there may be the right type of science. Mm. Yeah. And it's from different places. So. Yeah. Mm. And it depends what you're looking at as well. Um. Because, you know, if you're doing your PhD and doing your thesis and co- and you're, you are a Simon scientist, being a scientist, how important is that for you now? Like, being a scientist, like, is it changed from when you first called yourself Simon scientist? Is that area of expertise still a passion for you? You going through the thesis stuff and learning, the learning part of it, or I'm trying to separate the scientist part of the learning part, like the your, the the end game for you, mm. being a scientist in the field of whatever you want to do. I think my thought of being like being a scientist has shifted compared to when we first met two years ago, compared to now. So I often thought that, um, like, my life is my studies. So my life and who I'm defined as is what I do. So I'm a scientist, right? I'm a Samoan, I'm the Samoan scientist, and that's who I am, and that's it. But I think after COVID, when I was going through all the academic hurdles of trying to get into the PhD, and I didn't have that kind of status of some more scientists and getting to a PhD, then I kind of thought, so who am I if I'm not my work, if I'm not a scientist? And I think that was a hard time as well because I had to see what other things I enjoyed. And that was hard because there weren't many other things that I liked. Um, And I couldn't really separate um, what I do and what I enjoy kind of like enjoy to 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 me Amy like what I like to do as Amy um so I feel like now I see someone scientist as more like a nine to five my my work life and my studies is like my work but outside of that I'm someone who likes to like spend time with my animals, like be with my horse, be with my dogs, try and find creative things. I think recently I've noticed that 
I'm a really creative person in terms of like music and it's always been in the back of my head recently and I just can't get away from it I think it started from in high school like playing violin so I'm trying to more engage that side of myself like Amy and then have my salmon scientist like my work and my career that's my career but not who I am so yeah I think that was a hard lesson to learn because I I liked having Someone scientist is Amy, um, but in reality, when you know, when I don't know if I like, for example, you are not able to get a job as a scientist, then it's that's quite hard to understand who you are if if you kind of been thinking in that way, like I'm a scientist and that's who I am. Mm. Is there a pathway for, say, for you to go on as a scientist? And you own a court sort of thing, like your own sort of doing your own research on things and helping. Or who'd you help there? The university? Would you work for the university? Um, no, I would not work for the university. <laughs> um, but there are other, that's the thing, like even other research institutes that are partly owned by government. So it's quite hard to do things solely on your own unless I'm thinking of things like Rocket Lab you know, things like that. But there's not really any that I know of, um, researchers or lab spaces like that. Um, but I would most probably want to work for like an industry or um, and um, they call them Crown Research Institutes. So research centres that are funded by the government. And I've, I've come to love like learning about stuff probably when I started doing the the podcast, or when I started listening to podcasts, that's probably about eight years ago, eight, eight, nine years ago, and it's something that, man, I never enjoyed at school, you know, when in school I learned, I didn't like science, science was my worst, my worst kind of subject, I think because I didn't understand it, or my mind was on other things, or I don't know what it was, but something that now, like, man, I, I love it, eh? I love learning about stuff, especially, especially science, but, you know, with your with, with the kids these days, I know you talk to school kids and that. Is there like a need for these kids to want to learn more? Because when I think about when I was growing up at school, I think it's diff- it was different back then because there was no brown face to look up to. You know, there was no like, like I, I, I think if I was a kid and, and you came to my class and you were talking, like you being a brown face and me like, wow, that's something I could learn. Like, you know, something that I could look up to and... Like, you probably had that. Heaps of kids, like, a lot of kids, they look up to you and probably want to be something that they probably never thought they would be unless they, if they never saw you. Like, I think it's important that all these spaces where we, young kids can look up to us and for you to, like, to build that pathway. How, how much of that have you seen with our kids wanting to be a scientist in the future, wanting to learn more? Or? I was just... I'm thinking that COVID has really disrupted a lot of things. And I think students have different priorities now. Like, we need to work now because (laughs) we need to provide for our parents and our families because of COVID. And so I have heard that there, you know, are some students who are thinking about science, um, especially Pacifica, but it's... I don't know, it's harder now. It's harder to get students into university where they're going to study for three years and be in debt, you know. Um, But before COVID, 
definitely there were a lot of students who um, were really interested in the science and were surprised about the type of work that they could do in science and also surprised that, um, you know, Pacifica can go into science. And I found that was really encouraging because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be that person that I didn't have when I was younger because, like you said, if I saw someone in, who came to talk in my high school science class when I was who looked like me, then I felt like, oh, cool. If they could do it, then I could do it. Especially this age, this age, because of social media, because I think that's the good thing about you. You use your social media, you use your platform to promote yourself and your passion, being a scientist, and you know all that kind of stuff. It, it's, I think that's the way forward. For if we, because you talked about how COVID has put a step, made us step back, eh? So mm-hmm. and to rethink our priorities and that. So I think that yeah, you're right. There, there should now there should be like a something to push these kids ahead again and i think social media is a good way of doing it i think i think that that's the difference now with, with podcasts social media just getting out there because otherwise you, you won't get anywhere like you won't i think most of the kids they won't see anything if it wasn't for social media especially tiktok you know everyone's on tiktok you know and there's and there's a lot of um there's a lot of learning coming from tiktok too like you can learn how to do anything now on tiktok yeah you know? I search a lot of air fryer recipes on TikTok. <laughs> I think it was like, oh, there was some weird thing that I cooked on in the air fryer. Oh, I was like tofu. Really? Yeah, you can cook tofu in the air fryer. And it came out and it was kind of like, it was all right, but it was really dry. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I love TikTok. But um, oh, I was just thinking, like as, uh, in science, um we have a thing called science communication. So it's basically being able to talk about our research so everyone can understand it. And that's becoming more common for us as researchers because they want us to share our work with everyone. And so it's really important um, to have those social media skills and understand how to talk to media um, because you're right, that's how we get our research out there. And also it gives us feedback for our researchers some people are like what the hell are you doing this is stupid you know <laughs> you kind of reassess yourself and think okay this is not what the people want maybe we should do something different so in that space well are you gonna still pump some content now yeah, yeah i've been posting a couple on tiktok i'm trying to because tiktok's different like i'm still new to tiktok i'm trying to see what people like best so like these like trends you can do right dance trends mm. things like that I'm not good at dancing so I'm best like just to talk in front of the camera so I've been trying that and that seems to work TikTok comes around with TikTok is coming about because of the short attention span yeah. on people like you gotta really capture them in the first ten seconds of your of your scroll <laughs> yeah that's so true <laughs> and I find that I've I've come to learn that when. I do my previews on the on TikTok. Like you gotta find mm. the first few words that are like mm. they'll they'll make you stay there, you know. But uh, it's it's interesting, eh? When you learn all that kind of stuff. Like I just learned the other day. Like if if someone stays on the video on TikTok for the full three minutes, then TikTok will know you like that video and it'll send you more of those kind of videos. Yeah. Th- th- that kind of thing. But Is uh, it on your for, for you page? 
Oh, if you if oh no, on TikTok in in general. Oh. If you um if if you stay on the video for the full three minutes. Oh. Yeah, any video. If you stay on any video for two minutes or three minutes, then TikTok will know you like that video. But sometimes I gotta like wash my hands or like go and get stuff out of the oven, and so mm. it just plays on repeat. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I can't change it. Oh yeah, yeah. So you gotta get those same videos anyway. <laughs> I hate when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it scans your your finger. I don't know. <laughs> Probably do because it's it's from China. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I I do like TikTok. But you're so right with attention span. Like I now kind of want that immediate, like if it's, I quite like funny TikToks, you know, so I mm. want it, that immediate laugh or like yeah. funny content, like to get it in that first three seconds. Yeah, so right. Mm, mm. So, you know, if you're, you're writing your, writing your thesis, mm. like what kind of language are you using? Because that's like real technical. It's it, it can get real technical, eh? It's boring language. Like, like, how do you like give it some of your personal flavor? Are you allowed to do? Are you allowed to even do that? <laughs> like, make it because I'm man, not... if you if it's like what thirteen thousand words and yeah. another fifteen thousand more coming up, like, because for me, because I stopped I stopped reading books a few a couple of years ago because I start I start listening to my books now. But I, I read a lot of um, nonfiction, and there, I think there's one or two that got real technical and I just got bored. I just just close it and try away. But there's a lot of these nonfiction books that like they're like telling a story, and I, I and that's pretty cool. So how how are you writing? How are you writing this 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 thesis of yours? And and is that a challenge in itself to put your thoughts on paper and putting them in sentences where it's like expertly articulated? And because I find when when I write that I, I write better than I talk. Oh, good. Yeah, that's a good skill. Cause, yeah, because I can't. Because, yeah, I've noticed that when I write, because I'm actually thinking about what I'm writing and I can go back and do it again. And I think it's a good exercise to think. And I think I've been writing, I've been writing more stuff about sports and that and, and movies and stuff. But that's a good way of um, of thinking, you know, thinking about the topic and trying to get your, your point across in so many words. But how are you going through that sort of process? I find writing really hard, really difficult, um, especially in like academia. So for a thesis, mine's like really kind of like a science thesis. Um, and so they want us to write it in a way that's detailed, but also clear. <laughs> um, and when when I write, um, I guess some of the standard things apply when you write an essay like when you write a paragraph you're only going to talk about one topic but for us they want us to talk about one topic explain it a bit more give some examples and then compare those examples so in science especially for PhDs they really want us to compare different studies and say oh this study was really good because for example, showed that taro was is beneficial for people who, who have diabetes. But this other paper about taro was done on animals and there was no human studies done. So you kind of have to compare those papers and write about them in the thesis all the way through my thesis. And 
I think it's hard because I feel like um, I thought as as a writer or as a researcher, you just read all the research has been done and then you write it down. But that's not the case. You you have to really read the research that's been done, compare it, write it out, kind of refer back to your the research, write it out again, edit it, and then send it to your supervisors for them to read over. And so for me, that process has been really difficult. Um, you mean in sections and they just read section by section as um, you go along? For my supervisors, they would want to read like a section. So a section could be two pa- two pages. Um, sorry, it could be four pages. Um, but other supervisors, sometimes they just want to read it all together. But yeah, um, and having to learn that this year um, is difficult, but I'm still kind of going through that and developing my writing. Yeah. In terms of like putting a personal touch on it, can you? From a joke here and there or a reference? Because I, I try to do that with my writing. Like I try to throw in references. I know it's not academic writing, but it's my opinion on sport. On sport. So I come, I, I, try, to, I try to tell a story, like an experience I had in the past when I was young. And I relate that to what I'm talking about with with a game or something like that, mm-hmm. or if there's if it's if I'm talking about like a a, a game like a a game of of basketball and a, a team loses, like I would throw in a reference to compare that loss to like a movie where someone lost in a movie and yeah. I throw that in as well. So I'm trying trying to put my personal touch in it, so so it's not boring. And I think when we talked about the TikTok thing, like my thing when I start writing is that the first sentence has to shock you or start off with a bang sort of thing and then the rest of it is is trying to make you stay stay reading and i think for me that's my challenge like to to make the reader stay reading and i figured just write 500 words because that's one page and i think that talks to the short attention span people have as well like if if they i think if they see a whole like a whole novel of writing they're not going to read it especially on social media so if i just 500 words and have my paragraphs like that, like that, and headings each paragraph, then it'll be easier for people to read. And that. that and I think, thing. like you said, telling a story, because mm. that's really important. People enjoy reading stories. And I feel, as Pacifica, we are storytellers. And so, I mean, <laughs> it's a big skill to have, and I, I kind of strive to have that type of skill. And we, we're told as well to kind of, write our thesis like a story but it's not really a story you know it's more mm. academic well not a story in the pacifica sense yeah. maybe a western sense but i remember some of the books i read like some non-fiction books it starts off with the author's experience mm-hmm. and why he came around telling why he got interested in that topic what the book's about it starts off like that i think that that's a good way but with academic piece um thesis are you allowed to even do that are you allowed to yeah um for me i'm going to include that it's called positionality so it's um you write about kind of your experiences and how you see the world kind of how your ethnicity um your gender comes into the research because it, um you know as researchers we're, we're always going to be biased to whatever we do but it's really important to acknowledge those biases right. so I wanted to put that in the beginning and I feel like it gives the reader more understanding of 
where I'm coming from and who I am as a researcher. So yeah, I feel like that's really important to include. But not all theses, right, have that. It's mm. just really up to the person. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so how, d- how often do you do your writing? Your five hundred. Oh man, I've got all these um I've got all these like half written Yeah. Half written stuff. I can't finish them, eh? I'm I'm sort of like um if if you go to our website, www.westwestnet.com, mm-hmm. like you only see one author writing everything. <laughs> They're waiting for me to first time, but I'm still writing. Like I've got about 10 half-written articles, and that, that's my problem. I, I can't finish it. Because I get really excited when I'm, when I'm writing, and then when I'm nearly, nearly done, I get lost. Somehow, somehow I get distracted, and I won't go back to ages. And then by that time, it's like my energy is lost. My... Um, Feng Shui is lost on the whole, whole article. And so I'm just stuck, so I just leave it there. You know, and I've got 10 of those just just left there, you know. And then time goes by and it's irrelevant. That story is irrelevant. <laughs> so I've got to figure of stories that won't be irrelevant with, with the times. But um, I'm trying to, like, I know the feeling I get when I'm writing. I get this adrenaline rushing and it's real cool. It makes me write more and more, but then... So yeah, somehow I just I just stop. I think it's writer's blocky. Eh? Do you yeah. hear that? Yeah, I was thinking I've I've read a lot about like procrastination because I procrastinate a lot in um yeah, kind of like writer's block. And then um I tried this tip. I think it was more advice, but it, they said when you come to a hard bit of writing or if you have writer's block, it's best to push through because every time you get to a hard point and you leave it you know, you're going to have all these things that are half done. Oh, and see, that's so, exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> and so, like, in terms of a thesis, they said, you know, you need to have it done because you need to hand it in. So they said, whenever that happens, just push through as much as you can. So you could time yourself and say, okay, I have writer's block, but I'm going to try 10 more minutes. Mm-hmm. And in that 10 minutes, I want to try and just write anything. And so I found that worked a lot for me. I just kind of trained myself to do it. Like, oh, I don't feel like doing this today. But then I'll push myself to do, okay, I'll just start off five minutes. And then I'll notice like 40 minutes has gone by. So I find, yeah, just try and push through, even if it's for like five minutes or 10 minutes. Mm. That really helps to start off with. And then, yeah, you kind of get used to those hard situations and they don't become so hard anymore. Yeah. <laughs> because the technique I've, I've heard was that when you come to the writer's block situation, was, yeah, to push through. Mm. But also in the beginning... Just uh, whatever's in your head, just write it and then just write it. So you got full two pages of stuff and then go back and then and clarify everything and make it better and go back and go back. But then uh, I remember when I posted something on, on Facebook, just the opinion I had on the, on the game and then I posted it up. But then two days later, I had I realized I missed out something. I missed out some points that people would come at me on, but I figured it out myself. So then I thought maybe I should wait a couple of days just to get some more thoughts and so I go back and change it. But did you change it? No, because I already posted it. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like that's going to be with anything, right? You're always going to get that constant feedback or people not agreeing with you. Or like if you have additional points that you want to make. But I think with sports is different because I think if you cover all angles of your opinion, then people can people can understand where you're coming from that way. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't, then people will say, yeah, but... He was used to play anyway. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like blah, blah, blah. And like, oh, yeah, sorry. I didn't think about that. <laughs> but uh, there, there was times when there's times when that happened. Two days later, I realized, oh, shit, I should have put that in. 
Like I didn't realize that at the time. So now I'm gonna wait. Like when I think I got a piece finished, I'll probably leave it for two days in case something else comes up. Then I can add it in or take something out. Because I was just thinking, <laughs> nothing's ever perfect. Or kind of like you're always gonna have new ideas added to it. So you could, yeah, two days could be the maximum. Yeah, 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 yeah. Two days maximum. Yeah, yeah. It took two days for me to realize something was wrong with my my thing. So I won't do that again. I try wait for two days until I puzzle it up. But me, like, I love sports, eh? And I love reading the New Zealand Herald, the, the sports section. But those writers, man, so boring, eh? Like, I, I find, you know, it's... But I like reading the American stuff. So I've sort of taken a page from, from them, how they write. Like, they all they always add their their personality into their into their sporting um, opinions in that. And I find that re- really cool. Like, there's this one African-American sports writer from Chicago, his name's Scoop Jackson. He writes like he talks, and he writes like an African American. He's got all the slang, and, <laughs> cool. you know. Like, but he works for ESPN. You know, he's writing columns and he's writing his opinions about sport and that. But it's so cool. Like, I was thinking, man, I wish, man, I wish there were like Islanders that wrote like that in on the Herald. Yeah, you know, that'd that, be a first that we could understand. Yeah, like, you know, like our personality coming through. You know, because we, because we love sports, man, and like. When I'm thinking about that, when I think, man, there's nothing in the hero. There's nothing in the hero like that. So so maybe if I could train myself to write like that, to write about stuff I'm interested in with sport, and write in the way where I put I'll put my experiences, my life experiences, my jokes, my culture in it, then and, and write it in a way where it just goes with whatever I'm writing about, the All Blacks or, or Auckland Blues or, or Cricket or, or whatever it is, NRL. I think if I keep doing that, keep running, put them out on the website, and just practice, because all it is is just practice for me. Because I've been posting on um on, on Facebook my my sporting opinions as practice. It's just practice. I'm just practicing running when I do that. But then I had this fear of thinking what other people might think of my opinion, and that's like a it gives me anxiety. Eh? But I've learned to push through that. Like who cares? Just just put it out there. I think that's a big deal with with writing too and putting things out there because it, it's an intimate hard copy of, of what you're thinking and what you're feeling about a, a topic and sometimes that's sometimes that can be so personal that you're afraid what other people would say about it and stuff like that so but I think like nah you just gotta put it out there eh? and have you had any negative comments? Uh, not really not negative comments but I've had Comments come back like didn't agree with what I said, mm-hmm. you know. But that's not a negative comment. But I think it's just part of the having a having a conversation. Mm-hmm. But um, but even that would would scare people, you know. I think, yeah. you know, just having feedback like that, any sort of feedback, yeah. Some feedback that agrees with you, feedback that people don't agree with you. I think that mm-hmm. that scares a lot scares a lot of people. And I think I'm trying to to get around that. Good, because that's really hard. Like, that's a fear of mine as well, caring what people think and kind of doing things differently to what people expect. But I feel like writing in our way with our jokes, like, I've never seen that before, especially with sports. So that'd be really cool. Mm. And movies too. So I was trying to develop the style, right? Yeah, to put all that stuff in. And and referencing stuff that 
I'm experienced with the other unders will be experienced because I grew up with unders and that like all my friends from school and our experiences are sort of like the same so just putting those things in there that will that would relate to me and my friends or even people in South Auckland or, you know yeah just uh it's just one of those things there eh? like we all watch the same movies <laughs> that's right like we all you know listen to the same music we all go to church we all did the same sort of like the same things the mm-hmm. same anything to do with our culture living and growing up here and in, in new zealand going to school here and stuff like that like <coughs> it's different eh? mm. with all our families our cousins you know like all those little experiences if i add them into the into my writing you know in a way where it sort of relates to what i'm talking about mm. i think i think that's something different eh? and i feel like having your lived experience is so valuable because when you write you know what you're writing about and it's genuine yeah and other people will be able to relate to that as well they're like oh this guy you know he's islander <laughs> like yeah you're right that's something why it works for me when we write about that stuff because it is real it's real stuff and it's easy to write that real stuff yeah. like if it's not real it's hard to write yep. sometimes yeah <laughs> if you don't know it then it's hard to write it but if you do know it and with your heart then you can just write it easy and i think that's what makes people scared to write there eh? to put because you're putting that out there but it's i think it's part of life hey eh? because because I, I read um i finished reading uh stephen a smith's book his, his biography he's a if you don't know stephen a smith he's a um he's a broadcaster in espn and he he just put out his his all the biography and, and he talked about all the personal stuff when he was a kid and growing up the abuse from his father and that kind of stuff like these are real stuff hey hard to talk about stuff but because he's older you know that's in his past as part of his history he's like whatever now yeah yeah whatever <laughs> you can talk about it yeah. you know but i think that's it's hard for people to write about that kind of stuff because it's hurtful and eh? it's hard and they don't want anyone else to know you know but i don't know how you get yeah it's sort of Allowing yourself to allowing yourself to have that opportunity to tell those kind of stories because those are real stories, eh? There's a that's your life. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's what you know. People probably go through the same thing, you know. And then that's another thing. There's there's another thing too. Like if you if I think that I'm worried about what other people think, then I should know that people probably got the same problems or worse problems, you yeah. know. And I, you have to think that. No one's perfect. Mm. Yeah. It's sharing your stories to help others as well. Yeah, like that's like sometimes I feel if I don't want to share a story, or maybe vulnerable, but I feel like oh, but someone else might be going through the same thing, and if I could share my experience, then maybe that could help them, so their journey won't be as difficult. Mm. Because I know you talked about it last time you came, like with how. You've got two families, and that. Mm. I mean, was that even hard to talk about? Like your your history. I don't like yes and no because I I from ever since I can remember I've always known my Samoan family, and so they live here in Auckland, and then I was just raised by my New Zealand family which I was adopted into at birth. So I've always kind of known of my Samoan family, but 
don't have a close relationship with them. But I mean, you know, if I wanted to go to like their birthday or something, they would be more than happy to have me and vice versa, but not like a ongoing relationship with them. But it wasn't hard to tell that story because you told it a few times. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. So I feel like, I don't know. I just felt like that's what it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think because my mum being so honest with me when I was younger, she was just kind of like, you're adopted. I was like, I'm adopted. Yeah. <laughs> cool. It's one of those. Yeah, it is what it is. Mm. I wasn't brought up like that. Like, like my mum, she's, She's real private there, real private person. So when it comes to family stuff, you got to keep it in the family. She's that kind of, it's that kind of thing. Mm. So I don't know if me hard to talk about stuff is from that. I think mm. you know, just being private in that. But I, I see the benefits in in telling your 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 vulnerable stories, eh? The, the vulnerability stuff, man. Eh? Because when I think of Stephen A. Smith, how he talked about all those stuff when he was young, when he went through. Man, I'll never. If anything like that happened, like, bad. Never talk about that kind of stuff. I guess if you're in a position where it's okay. Yeah, Yeah, and you yourself feel comfortable. Because, yeah, you also have to have your own boundaries as well. You know, if you don't feel comfortable sharing those stories, then don't. Yeah, just just make sure it's it's good enough for the, for my referencing and that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, cool. Cool, Amy. Cool. Thanks for coming back on, uh, back on the Warfare Fire. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so you're back at uni next week? Or? Yeah, I've been ugh, like... So how does it work? You do, do you go for classes or not? Or you just go for... I don't have any classes. So basically, um, I treat it like a job. So I try oh, right. and work. Use their resources. And yeah. And then I... Well, I usually do like six hours a day of studies. Yeah. Oh. Researching. Oh, no. And then have just then I'll have meetings with supervisors monthly, and then sometimes when we have participants come into the clinic, then we then I'll go into the university for like half a day. Oh right. Um, but there's right. no classes for me. Right. If there's any uh, lectures that's got to do with writing about the UF, did they they just they just notify you and you just go? Um. I mean, I would love to do that lecturing, but there haven't been any papers. In relation to my topic, but maybe some in the future. Right. Sweet. Okay. Enjoy your weekend and uh, good luck for the. Oh, be safe for the, <laughs> be for the safe hurricane. For hurricane when the <laughs> hurricane gets in. I'll be sure to uh, lock everything down. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.